0: Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop after this message. Most people don't realize that cannabis is serious business that requires serious technology solutions. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group. We are seriously proud to provide technology and security systems that help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, I'm here to tell you that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis. sunstatetech.com cannabis.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm happy you could join us. Conducting a search for historical information about cannabis online will yield lots of results about ancient origins in Asia, the Middle East, India, and Europe, but very few on Africa. So when I received an email about a new book called The African Roots of Marijuana, I have to say my curiosity was piqued. I mean, after all, the Cradle of Mankind is often considered to be home to the first humans to walk the Earth, and with so many prehistoric sites unearthed throughout the continent, you'd think that archaeologists would have reported at least some trace evidence of cannabis amid human remains had they found any, right? But then again, maybe not. Of all the decomposed organic matter found at ancient burial sites, cannabis wouldn't be something most archaeologists would think to test for, Unless, of course, they were specifically looking for it, so that wouldn't be surprising. But to learn that the origins of cannabis, including the first iteration of the term marijuana, could be traced to Africa was a surprise. But in a way, it makes sense if you consider the prevalence of cannabis use in the US before the Civil War among the African slave laborers. There's always been a rather strong connection between racism and cannabis use. I mean, most people associate the start of prohibition with the racist Reefer Madness campaign that demonized marijuana by attributing its name to the Mexican farm workers in the South. And the racial underpinnings of the war on drugs has been relentless as evidenced by the fact that it has disproportionately victimized people of color. But it wasn't until I encountered Dr. Duval's book that I began to wonder if the racism associated with cannabis use might have originated long before prohibition began. I also wonder whether an understanding of the history of cannabis in Africa could help to dispel the stigma associated with its use and end the systemic racism ingrained in our criminal justice system that has victimized its users. Those are questions that I figured would be best posed to the author himself, and I'm delighted to say he's here to provide some answers. Dr. Chris Duvall is an Associate Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of New Mexico. He's also the author of a book called Cannabis, and his new book titled The African Roots of Marijuana is being released this month. Dr. Duvall, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Please just call me Chris.
1: Thank you, I will. And I was fascinated by the topic of your book, because a lot of people just are not aware that Africa has much to do with the cannabis plant in terms of the historical context of it. As we often hear about the Asian and European origins of the use of the cannabis plant, and so, Africa, I know that there is a big history there. So when I saw that you've written this book, I was absolutely fascinated. And before we get into sort of what the topic is, please just tell me what inspired you to go there as a research project.
0: Yeah, so my background is in African studies. And after I, I finished my dissertation about uh, fifteen year or thirteen years ago, I started doing research on, plant use in the African diaspora, looking specifically at plants used in the slave trade. And in doing research on plants that were used in cattle ranching, um, I came across a reference to cannabis as Angolan tobacco.
1: Wow, Angolan tobacco. That's fascinating.
0: Well, yeah. And that interested me. And in doing research in the standard books, uh, academic books on on Africans and, and plant use, it wasn't mentioned in there. I went to the standard histories of cannabis, and, and there was almost nothing on Africa in those, but as I continued doing research, I found there was a very very strong um, literature, primary literature, historical documents and whatnot that describe how cannabis was used in Africa during the slave trade period, and then um, in context tracing back uh, to um, you know, East Africa
1: when it was originally introduced from, from South Asia. So when you discovered all of this, was it more along the lines of using it for ritualistic or traditional, I don't know, cultural reasons, or was it also the medical uses of cannabis?
0: Yeah, so it's it's a pretty complicated story in terms of how and why people were using it. The, the big picture is that we don't have any accounts from the actual people who are using it, all of the accounts that we have. Are from European travelers and, and colonial officers and whatnot who wrote their observations about what what they assumed people were doing or thought people were doing. Based on this, though, what what is really clear is that um, cannabis was very much a, a functional um, drug for people during uh, who were involved with hard labor, right? And so. Slaves used cannabis in particular in very specific geographic contexts. Um, you have a large group of people who are, are commercial porters. Their job was to carry commercial shipments on their heads. Uh, people who had really difficult jobs, they used uh, cannabis kind of as a stimulant before work. And that's what was observed a lot of times. In the broader context, though, we can see some, some cultural uses, some medicinal uses, um, you know, particularly with regard to the, the hard labors as well. But we really don't see a whole lot evidence-wise of kind of spiritual uses and things like that. There were some, but too often Africa is portrayed as being this this kind of primitive place where there's, you know, this kind of these these spiritual sort of ideas and practices centered on drug use that we don't really don't have evidence for that. And so kind of addressing some of the stereotypes that, are, that exist around Africa in general, but also about uh, uh, drug use in Africa is, is one of the things that I, I, I've done in my research as well.
1: Well, in African studies in general, I mean, there's not really a lot of written history that you know or or documentation of historical events because there really wasn't much in in some of the less developed countries especially when it comes to some of the ancient tribes that are still practicing a lot of the same rituals and traditions that they've been practicing for thousands of years and those traditions don't necessarily involve writing <laughs> or documenting history and these stories of their history are often carried out through just verbal communication, right? Well, yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me that there wouldn't be any historical evidence of what they're using it for unless you were to go directly to each culture and literally ask them. Am I kind of right on the track there?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, to a certain extent, sure. You know, oral histories are important in many parts of Africa. But we have to remember also that, you know, African cultures are, are, constantly changing just like cultures anywhere and so what people are doing now with cannabis is not necessarily what they were doing a decade ago let alone a century or two centuries ago and if you look at the the literature that we have and there are a lot of written histories from africa but they all have been with with some exceptions pretty much all of them were written by europeans and european travelers and so there are some definite limitations to what you can get from these things, but if you, you know, look at what they were talking about, you kind of triangulate about what was happening in a broader context at a, at a given point in time. You can get a fair understanding of what was happening in many aspects of, of societies in the past. And so, you know, in Africa, there's written accounts of cannabis use uh, going back to the 1580s, and you know that gives us again a, a certain type of a window of of Information there, but in much of the continent, um, cannabis has roots and rootedness, and the, the kind of ethnographic material that we have that's much more recent really suggests that there's a, it was a really a functional drug in many cases rather than, than something that was you know underpinning spirituality, which isn't to say there wasn't you know you know spiritual uses of it, and certainly within diasporic communities there has been spiritual uses you know rastafarianism in jamaica is the the best example there but you know we just don't see this kind of you know magical spiritual sort of ideas that are a lot of times presented in the cannabis literature of of how people were using it it was more a a medicinal drug it was more a recreational drug to, to use very you know modern terminologies is there You know, and of course, there are some specific instances we can talk about, you know, kind of spiritual applications and things like that. But for the most part, it it wasn't. It was something that was useful in material ways, uh, as opposed to kind of spiritual communication types of of, of
1: practices. Yeah. And actually, I learned a while back that some of the earliest evidence of the medicinal use of cannabis dates back to like 4000 B.C., I think with the discovery of uh, remains of a, a medicine man where there was actually cannabis in a satchel that was used for traditional healing in Asia. And it's amazing to me that we've gone like nearly a century without taking advantage with all that we have access to in terms of science to really further the medical applications of cannabis until recently. But I find it fascinating that it has been. I mean, people discovered this a long time ago. They also discovered things like dandelion root and <laughs> you know, all, all of those traditional holistic medicinal healing tools that they had at their disposal back then without laboratories and microscopes and all of the modern accoutrement of <laughs> creating pharmaceuticals today. But I think it's fascinating too. And when you look at the... European accounts of the use of cannabis. Was there any bias to the way that they were describing the use of cannabis at all? Or was it typically just acknowledging that they're using it for medicinal purposes? If you go back to like the 15th century?
0: Yeah. So I want to i want to answer two different things. One, you talked about a little bit about the archaeology and you're, you're, you're talking about um, uh, remains that were found in Western China uh, about a decade ago, but that are really important. You know, they, they um, you know, showed a very specific context of use, and they showed the plant remains, and in, in particular uh, paraphernalia, as we would call it, right? Um, there's also some great archaeology from from what's now Pakistan and the Indus Valleys, from, you know, Turkmenistan as well. In Africa we don 't have the same type of archaeology there just hasn 't been the same amount of work that's been done and so there's no historical remains of the plants like hemp seeds or things like that that are found in Europe commonly um, there's a little bit of pollen um, you know fossil pollen, which is really important for kind of understanding where the plant was in different landscapes. We have that only in Kenya and Morocco and, and, and Madagascar as well so there hasn 't been the the type of of archaeological research that shows us the same sort of detail as that as the as people have found in in Asia or in Europe. What we do have archaeologically in Africa, though, is smoking pipes, right? And we have smoking pipes that are about 2,000 years old. Um, just the bowls, the, the pipes uh, themselves, where a lot of it was made from organic material, so they broke down, and 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 so we just have the bowls, but it's a very old technology in in africa and the earliest evidence anywhere of cannabis smoking is pipes that were found archeologically in ethiopia with actual residue that that could be tested for cannabinoids so there's this very long history of smoking in africa that most people have no idea that that it existed for one thing but it was also the place where people first learned to smoke cannabis right and so if if you're a person and you know nothing about cannabis except it can be a smoked drug, that's African knowledge. And we have to understand that and accept the the archaeological record. And and you know, as obvious as as stone pipe bowls are in an archaeological site, it's remarkable how many archaeologists and others have, have just ignored that and assumed that, you know, if we're finding them in Africa, well, they just made them based on something that, that was introduced from elsewhere. And so the archaeology of Africa is. Is very important for cannabis history, but it shows us some different things than what we're finding in in Asia, right? And so, that's the the archaeology bit there, I guess, uh, with regard to European bias. Um, yeah, reading historical accounts of Africa means um, understanding how race was conceptualized historically, um, how that was portrayed in. Uh, different ways um, in in discussing people and the things that, that people were doing. And for the most part, Europeans, um, you know, saw Africa as a primitive place, a place where people um, didn't come up with and have creative ideas on their own, but they just sort of mimicked or aped ideas that were imported from elsewhere. And so people ignored the fact that there was, you know, smoking pipes, for instance, there. But in terms of the use of plants and plant medicines, whether it's cannabis or something else, um, you know Europeans a lot of times just looked at that as some very you know primitive um, thing that didn't have any meaning other than just showing kind of these stereotypes of Africa and Africans, which um, you know is is problematic in trying to understand the history. and so in reading the historical documents, you know, you have to kind of look at those things and kind of parse out, well, how much of this is just kind of these ethnocentric judgments? How much of this is actual some degree of ethnographic observation and, you know, kind of parsing out the ethnographic observation, you know, we can find that people had very specific medicinal uses and other material uses for cannabis and, you know, those are valuable to recognize, and those are valuable to see because it, it provides us precedent for under, understanding how people might use cannabis today or or in other points in time.
1: I do want to delve into your thoughts about the origins of the racism that is associated with cannabis today in terms of relating it back to the slave trade, which obviously originated in Africa. But before then, I also wanted to go back to something that you said, that a lot of the archaeology coming out of Africa just hasn't really paid much attention to whether or not there was cannabis there. And I think that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though in order to find and really recognize the use or the importance of finding cannabis, archaeologists kind of have to know about it and be looking for it, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, and that's certainly something, and and a a broader problem with archaeology is that, you know, in the past, up until just, you know, fairly recently, people were only looking for, like, clear human-made artifacts, right, the stone statue and the stone pipe and things like that, and all the other stuff, the detritus that was kind of packed in with, with the human artifacts was just thrown out, and so, you know, people are... You know, archaeologists are more attentive to that and are, are seeking plant remains, seeking seeds and, and other sorts of things that you can, um, you know, that, that plants might leave behind. But, yeah, in many cases, people just haven't really looked for that. And that's not just in Africa, but it's elsewhere as well. And, you know, in Africa, limitation is that there just hasn't been as many um, sites explored as there has been in uh, Asia or in Europe you know, other places where there's, there's ancient cannabis in the places where people have done the work and have been attentive for it. There's, there's a lot of times been evidence found, but um, there is just kind of a neglect of it, um, of of the plant and just kind of plant use more generally in African sites.
1: So when you talk about the origins of the racism of cannabis as as it's permeated our criminal justice system, it's permeated the policies that have been made around cannabis. And if you look at the origins of a lot of the people who were brought over here against their will and the use of cannabis in what would now be the African American culture and and the racism that's associated with that How would you make the connection between the more ancient studies of cannabis and use of cannabis, making the the arc to where we are now or where it was when the slave trade was originated here in the United States? I mean, how does the racism relate back to the findings of the origins of use of cannabis in Africa itself? Okay. So that's a big question. So the big, you know, the big context,
0: and this is, you know, what I'll say now kind of comes out of my background in African studies is the concept of race that we have and of, of you know, categories like black and white uh, in terms of racial categories, that traces back to the slave trade, right? Before there was commercial slavery in the Atlantic world, Europeans and, and others didn't have the concepts that we take for granted nowadays of, of black and white, um uh, racial categories those categories came out as a kind of intellectual justification for slavery for t- treating people like like property like animals right and so the language that we use and the the thinking that that a lot of people have is 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 fundamentally derived from from the african slave trade and that's not because everyone is individually like buying into racist ideologies. It's just the basic language and concepts that we have, you know, traced to a very specific point in time. And so when Europeans started really paying attention to cannabis, uh, in the 1800s, really after about 1820, 1830, something like that, um, they were using the language and the concepts about human difference that existed at that point in time. And, you know, when they were per- Writing about cannabis, whether they were writing about it in in the Levant, you know what we now think of as the Middle East or if they were work, working in 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 Africa in some places, they looked at the behaviors that people had through these racial categories, and so it was looking at what people were doing with these particular plants and understanding that as a characteristic feature of these different racial categories in many cases, right. And the challenge with cannabis is that in in historic European thought, it has these two really um, kind of politically charged uses. One is as historical hemp, meaning in this case, fiber and oil seeds and things like that. And European countries, you know, the Kings and the Admirals, they really found hemp as fiber in particular, very important because it was important for maintaining, uh, you know, naval power, maritime power. And so they saw that and they framed that as this is the way that hemp or that cannabis i'm sorry that cannabis should be used and if you look at the um you know the the history of of botanical taxonomy that kind of valuation of the european perception of how cannabis should be used that's integrated into our thinking about the plant taxonomy not just you know how people were, were interacting with it and so when europeans historically saw non-Europeans, other people, whether it was from South Asia or Africa or wherever, using cannabis as a drug, um, they saw that as being this, this just wrong-headed thing to do that they kind of incorporated within, you know, into their racial um, categories as being this negative thing that these other categories of, of people do. And so that was written into the cannabis historical record, right? And so if you go back and you read the historical documents, it's, you know, associating this particular plant use, all right, as a, a smoked drug in general, with these particular racial categories. And in colonial context in Africa, those racial categories and those perceptions of, of plant use were immediately incorporated into laws, the first drug control laws. A lot of these were explicitly racist and explicitly directed towards um, Africans, right? And, and aiming specifically at the hard laborers who were the most common, or at least most commonly observed um, users of, of the drugs. And so international prohibition really traces to colonial Africa. That's where the initial, um, you know drug laws against cannabis uh, were developed and in the negotiations that led up to the the you know there was a couple of international drug control um uh, agreements uh that were enacted in the early uh, 20th century in 1912 and 1925 leading up to 1925 south africa and egypt those were the places that said we should ban cannabis globally and they succeeded right and so cannabis became you know, controlled um, after 1925 because of, of the views of you know, uh, you know, the white minority government in South Africa and the, the government in, in Egypt. Now, a lot of times what happens in in cannabis histories, and if you read literature on cannabis, it, it focuses just on the United States, and that's important, right? The United States has had a significant role, obviously, in International drug control. um, It's also important to recognize that most of the documents, uh, most of the literature written about cannabis is written by Americans. And so the people who've written the literature have been very concerned about what's happening in the United States and what happened in the United States. And in the United States, you know, the 1920s, the 1930s, that was the context where um, cannabis became illegal. And there's basically two broad reasons why people wanted to make cannabis under, you know, controlled in the United States. One was pharmaceutical practice. There was a lot of problems with the cannabis pharmaceuticals that were on the market in the late 1800s and early 1900s. There was a lot of more broad, you know, broader set of problems with just, you know, pharmaceutical quality and patent medicines and things like that. And so there's a lot of laws in the early 20th century worldwide about controlling pharmacy practice and cannabis was listed in there because it was considered a pharmaceutical. Um, and so there's restrictions on that. The other uh, kind of motivation for early drug control or cannabis control laws in the United States were concerns that it, it caused health problems, right? And it's important to understand that uh, that those concerns, a lot of those traced back to colonial um, insane asylums in South Africa, in Egypt, in South Asia, where you had these Western doctors, you know European doctors, that whenever somebody came in with some sort of a mental health crisis, if the doctors didn 't know what was going on, they said, "Well,, oh, it must be cannabis, and so therefore cannabis causes um, mental illness was was how it was perceived and so people in the united states saw that and they they said well we don't want this problem to happen we don't have we don't seem to have this problem but let's prohibit cannabis as as a drug anyway right to kind of prevent prevent this problem from happening and so you had that those kind of two motivations come together to lead towards you know formal federal prohibition in the 1930s and in the 1930s and subsequently a lot of times drugs and drug control were were you know represented and portrayed in, in racial terms and racist terms and and that's you know common knowledge to people who you know have, have read any cannabis literature and there was a lot of concern about controlling people is really where um, you know what the motivation was there and that control was expressed in the language of the time the language that does is very racist and was racist then but was more acceptable and so attributing um cannabis to certain groups that's what was done right whether it was mexicans not meaning um you know not meaning the nationality but kind of the pejorative term of just spanish speakers in in the united states it was attributed to those groups of people and we still have this kind of attribution that certain groups of people are, you know, associated with certain drugs. And so in order to, you know, control these drugs, it, you know, it, it, it means we need to target certain people. And so what's the link, you know, between the U.S. context and the African context? It's really kind of associating particular drugs with particular groups of people. And you have this deep-seated racism that's expressed in, in, in how laws are enforced and and whatnot that kind of creates these patterns that exist uh, worldwide, right? Very long answer.
1: It's fascinating though. It it really is fascinating, especially when, when you look at the origins of the perceptions. And I've often just attributed the blatant racism associated with cannabis here in the United States to that very sinister, but highly effective, public relations campaign, the Reefer Madness, which so successfully permeated the collective American psyche and that has lasted for so long, it's really been a tough stigma to eliminate because of those associations and especially like with the migrant farm workers. And culturally, I guess the campaign tried to make the association that it was going to cause dangerous behavior and especially within those groups, the labor groups in the south, so it's it's very fascinating so but thank you for explaining it so well because I think that this is just a piece of the historical context that kind of gets lost in our vernacular today
0: and yeah, so I mean that perception thing is really important and in the work that I've done on on cannabis, what is really missing is an understanding that that historically you know cannabis was something that was associated with class not race right and a lot of people have kind of perpetuated this notion of drug use in general or cannabis in particular as being associated with particular racial groups and if you look historically you're at, at the different you know stereotypes or 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 racist portrayals that have been out there really we're talking about people who had really difficult lives in many cases right and so you know, the, the, the idea of Mexicans in the Western United States, again, meaning the kind of pejorative term, not nationality. Who are those people? The, a lot of those people were, were migrant farm laborers who had really difficult lives and were basically using cannabis to treat, you know, various conditions of, of their life, of, of pain and and whatnot. Um, if you look historically at, at kind of portrayals of Africans, a lot of the people were you know, slave laborers or or... Um, you know, hard labors that, you know, they were using cannabis because it helped them deal with PTSD. It helped them deal with chronic pain. It helped them deal with all of these kind of, you know, traumas that existed. And by focusing on race, we're missing that. We're missing that important history that, you know, really should justify interest in looking at, at cannabis now as a way of treating, again, PTSD or chronic pain and things like that, that, you know, Pro marijuana folks have been pro-medical marijuana folks are aware of, but a lot of people aren't. and they just kind of you know, see those uses as being an excuse to, to smoke marijuana now, but you know, really have these strong historical precedents saying that we need to look at this relationship and try to understand why it is that people have used this, this substance in, in consistent ways for a long time.
1: That's something really interesting that you mentioned because the human body is really pretty amazing when it comes to gravitating toward things that help us (laughs) or that our bodies need. And historically, I think that the use of cannabis was one of those things, you know, that, that if somebody feels that they need it, even if they don't know why, they'll gravitate toward it and i think you're right a lot of people self medicate without realizing that that's what they're doing but they feel better when they were using it like before all of this information came out that it would help with ptsd or that it would help with muscle pain or just general anxiety and sleeplessness and and things like that people who were using cannabis on a regular basis were what I found in talking to like long term users who used it long before any policy changes were made. They'll say, you know, that they just felt better when they were using cannabis, and they couldn't explain it. And now they can. Yeah, so it's interesting.
0: And, and you know, that's, you know, cannabis is, you know, just a plant as, the, as the, the the saying is, right. But it's important to understand how that fit in historically. And, you know, it was something that it can grow just about anywhere. And, you know, for people who harvest inflorescences for smoking, it can grow as a weed and the plant prioritizes floral development. And so you can, you know, it's something that is a subsistence pharmaceutical or historically was a subsistence pharmaceutical for people that really didn't have many other options or at least couldn't afford them or weren't allotted them. So, you know, it's something that historically was was important in very specific segments of, of of um, human history in that role as being a subsistence pharmaceutical for people who didn't, just didn't have a lot of other options.
1: So when it came to writing the book, how long did it take you? When did you start it?
0: Yeah, so I I started really on cannabis in 2011. And before that I'd studied various other plants, but um, as I studied the African history of it, I found that I really needed to understand, you know, the global nature of, of the plant, you know? and so i started reading you know world histories of cannabis and i just found that i distrusted every you know pretty much everything i read Uh, there's a lot of books that circulate widely in, in in you know pro cannabis circles uh there's a lot of books there's a couple books that that circulate in anti-cannabis circles and they both were saying kind of the same things that weren't convincing there was a lot of evidence that they're they're, you know they're not very well researched, you know, the sort of things that I as a college professor, you know, say you need to cite your sources and you need to, you know, do those sort of things. Most of the really widely spread cannabis histories just don't do that or don't do that very well. And so I kind of put Africa, the Africa focus on hold for a couple of years so I could research a world history. And that's the the first book that I published uh, in uh, 2014 was a, a world history once I was done with that, I returned to looking at cannabis uh, in particular. And, um, you know, it's a, a book that that took a lot of time because, you know, there's really very little that has been written very much on, on cannabis in Africa or the African diaspora more broadly. And so I had to learn about a lot of different places where I don't have direct experience. And, and what I ended up doing is is kind of focusing on on Central Africa, Western Central Africa, so countries nowadays from Angola to Gabon, really. Um, And that's where the the people-plant relationship we talk about as marijuana, that's where it originated, right? And so the the word marijuana traces to Central African languages. It's mariamba in a language called Kimbundu in Northern Angola. And so I really looked just at that area or or focused on that area and and looked at the rest of Africa as kind of a broader context for that. Um, And so I kind of traced the people that were coming out of that part of Western Africa who were taken from that part of Western Africa and and looked at where they went across the Atlantic and how their knowledge um, survived across the Atlantic.
1: So you're still a practicing professor, correct?
0: Yeah. We finished finals last week, so
1: so from the academic world, did you get any pushback when you were studying this? I mean, did anybody reject the idea that you were going to go into this, and are you teaching this particular subject now? Yeah,
0: um no, I didn't have pushback against um, initiating the study. People thought it was interesting what i've I've found though is a couple things. Um, other academics tend to be either like you know, hey, that's great, that's interesting stuff. It needs to be researched. Or they're like, oh, you know, you're studying cannabis because you're a stoner, right? And not really realizing that cannabis has some really interesting and important roles in, in human history that, that we don't understand very well. And the reason we don't understand it in 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 a large sense is because uh you know prohibition really stunted research on on the plant, on on people-plant relationships in particular. And so um i haven't I was never discouraged from doing the research but um, i it's not always been you know well received simply because people don't a lot of times take it seriously um, I do teach this um, the material um, you know we, the, the last week we finished a class on on looking at at drugs um, in society and and in ecology. And I really benefited from talking with students about their interactions with and their experiences with and their knowledge of cannabis, because any one of us has a very limited window into what human experiences with cannabis are, but by talking to others, we can get a a, a broader experience and you know the people who 've had you know probably most uh, the students who 've had probably most impact on me are those that have had real troubles with cannabis in various ways and saying. You know, hey, you know for them to say hey there's there's a lot of potential in this plant, but there's also things that we should be wary of as well. Um, you know that's important and, and I try to make sure to to be um uh, aware and respectful of that that viewpoint just as much as the people who find you know cannabis to be a a, a wonderfully effective uh, medicine for whatever um, they're taking it for, so getting that broad range of of inputs has been very valuable for me
1: well, that's pretty interesting. I find it fascinating when I speak with medical professionals who have tried to bring up cannabis and study of the endocannabinoid system. And still to this day, despite all of the amazing medical advances regarding cannabis, it's so underrepresented in medical schools. And I'm of the belief that cannabis could actually transform the field of medicine. I mean, when you consider that 47,000 people died from opiates that didn't need to um, because of, you know, the the misinformation that was out there about the overprescribing of opiates back in the 90s and, and early 2000s. And yet, There's been this enormous resistance in the academic world to studying cannabis as a medicine, and obviously they weren't really allowed to because they're sanctioned by the U.S. government on a federal level, uh, many of them, and they don't want to cross that line. So, And also we've had these issues with only one source of research cannabis, which is so poorly grown and filled with mold and all sorts of other pathogens (laughs) that you can make patients sick by studying it.
0: (laughs) It it is really remarkable to kind of understand how the U S government has managed, um, cannabis. I mean, it's a, you know, even as a completely illegal industry, which it isn't at this point, but it's a huge, huge industry and it's, it's treated as if it's valueless, um, and it's, it's remarkable how little investment that the US government has, has put into it. State governments are starting to invest in it a little bit, but there's still a lot to, to know. But, but my response would be that the medical literature on cannabis is so much better than the social sciences literature on cannabis. Like historically, what role did it have in different places? How did people use it? Why, why did they use it at different points in time, whether it's currently or historically? We know so very little about that. And the medical literature, there's a lot that can be added to it, but we know a lot about what it can do and what it can't do and, and those sort of things. So, yes, I agree, but the, the social sciences, the history, um component of, of studying cannabis, in my perspective, is even less well-developed than me- the medical literature.
1: So I'm just curious, how would you propose people would address the topic of cannabis as a means of ending racism in America. I mean, that's sort of an obtuse question, and I apologize for that. But I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about it, because it seems as though cannabis has been so wrapped up in the racism in our criminal justice system, so there's got to be an antidote to it. And would it be studying the social aspects of cannabis to remove that stigma or to remove that racist bias that often comes with the regulation of cannabis?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that's, a, that's again, a really complex question. Um, so decriminalization, legalization, right? They're two slightly different things. But one of the biggest and most important arguments to make for decriminalization for legalization is because of the racism that exists in drug law enforcement right there's a lot of data out there that shows that you know um in this country and in brazil and there's uh, a little bit in europe as well um portugal and, and and great britain come to mind that the people who suffer the most from drug law enforcement are people of color right and and that it shouldn't happen. So decriminalization means that um, there's less or lower risk there. But it's also really important to recognize that in places that, you know, have already decriminalized or legalized cannabis, race racial bias still persists in um, drug law enforcement, right? We have that, you know, evidence from, from Chicago and New York City and, and in Colorado as well. And so the bigger problem is like you know, there's some fundamental social problems, you know, in terms of structural racism and structural violence that need to be addressed. Drug control laws are part of the structure, but, you know, just like thinking about and worrying about, you know, racism and drug law enforcement historically in the United States, I mean, racism and law enforcement have been hand in hand since well before there was, was drug control laws in the United States. And so a big part of it to me is, you know, what I feel like I can do is to look at the the race and the stereotypes that exist within the cannabis literature and target those and say, look, this is a racist stereotype and we need to get past this and we need to get over this and we need to think more honestly and and accurately about the plant and and its uses. And so, you know, for me, an, an important aspect of this is that you know, a lot of the literature that I deal with in terms of slavery and cannabis use is really easily available, really super easily available. Some of the most important sources were in pharmaceutical journals in, in Britain, published in the 1860s, 1870s. And I know that most people don't go and read those things, but physicians at that point in time did. And physicians nowadays who claim to portray and represent the history of cannabis as medicine They've made absolutely no mention of Africans, African uh, diaspora, the experience of people in, in, in the continent or in the diaspora, nothing. And instead, what you see in the medical literature are these little historical anecdotes that you know, Queen Victoria used cannabis or George Washington used cannabis. And those ad- anecdotes are, are demonstrably and patently false. And there's no recognition of that. Right. There's no recognition that a lot of the stories and the histories that we have of cannabis are politically motivated, right? And it's easy to see that in the anti-cannabis prohibition literature, you know, these stories of assassins and degenerates and things like that is just, you know, the hypocrisy is pretty obvious if, if for people who spend any time around cannabis it's important to recognize that the hypocrisy and the racial racist stories have been perpetuated in pro-cannabis literature as well. And so it's important to recognize that, right? To recognize that a lot of the stories that people know about cannabis reflect the same sort of racial categories and and racial ideas and judgments that existed, you know, historically in the the anti-cannabis literature, but they've kind of just been taken up as a given in the, pro cannabis literature and kind of perpetuated onward, right and ignoring the fact that there were a lot of you know people you know not from Europe and not in positions of power that benefited from cannabis, that challenges racial stereotypes that people don't recognize that they have to begin with. But it also gives a a more honest intellectual foundation for, you know, advocating for cannabis nowadays, not building on these stories that, you know, Queen Victoria used cannabis or George Washington or whatever, but saying actual people who were actually marginalized because of racial categories, because of socioeconomic inequalities, those were the people that existed in the past who used cannabis and were discriminated against. And we also need to understand that that persists now, and we need to address that, and not just kind of come up with these artificial histories that that serve these political purposes that you know don't do anyone any good, right? And so addressing stereotypes is really what I hope to do in, in addressing my work.
1: Yeah, well, I think you're right. In the pro-cannabis literature, there's a lot of association of cannabis with people who would help them get their point across that it's a respectable plant (laughs) like you know for instance the Queen Victoria or George Washington although I have to disagree George Washington actually in his diaries spoke of having his cannabis tea to relax in the afternoon (laughs) so I think he actually was a user but I think you're right though, there's a lot of sensationalization that goes on. We we would have to I would before I accept
0: it, I'd have to go
1: and look at, at George
0: Washington's diaries because a lot of the stuff that's out there, like there's there's accounts of that circulate about you know him, you know, harvesting the flowers in order to, you know, roll joints. You know, um, if you go to his actual diaries, he either doesn't say those things or if you read it in context, he's talking about something completely different that people with uh, 2010s sort of understanding of the plant go back and look at it and they say, oh, this must have been what happened. But that's done without kind of an understanding of of the historical context or, or what was going on. And, you know, to say anything about Queen Victoria or George Washington is heretical to some audiences and I totally get that and, and I've I've heard it, but a lot of the stuff that that is in the pro-cannabis literature is just, you know, demonstrably false. And so George Washington, for instance, his association with it as a drug—sure, he was a farmer. He planted um, hemp. Most of the time, people in George Washington's time period in the United States planted hemp to make clothing for slaves because it was cheap and easy to to process uh, for low-quality fibers. Um, you know, the stories that he used it as a drug trace, as far as I can tell, to two sources. One was an advocacy poster that was made in 1972, I think, from an organization called Amorpha, which was kind of a precursor to normal. And they basically took some quotes out of his diary that were taken out of context and inaccurately summarized anyway. And then the second one was a weekly um, newspaper Uh, you know, like a weekly newspaper, you know, the free things that you can get in many places that actually traced here to Albuquerque, um, New Mexico, where I am, there was a page of jokes about cannabis and people. And it said, oh, these seven US presidents create, you know, used cannabis. And it was, you know, part of this series of jokes that they were laying out. It was taken up into this magazine in the late 1970s and that was taken up into The Emperor Wears No Clothes and some other books at that time period. And it's been presented as, as truth, but it traces to a very identifiable point in time. Um, the same thing could be said about Queen Victoria and there's some other stories there that like That's where my research in cannabis comes from is that I went to these common sources and said, oh, this is what's going on. But as an academic, I went and looked further and like there's so many things that are just false that circulate about cannabis, whether it's it's pro cannabis or anti cannabis. Most of the things that people read that, you know, ostensibly portray the history. Are omitting information they 're misrepresenting information or they're just they 're just false right and and that 's a lot of what is in you know the books that i 've written is saying look let's be a little more honest and a little more real about what this plant's history actually was because that 's a better foundation for
1: figuring out how to
0: manage it more effectively than you know the the context that's existed under prohibition, which hasn 't helped anyone
1: right well, you know what the sensational exaggerations, if you will. I think they were all born from people desperately trying to convince an unconvincible public that cannabis was okay. And historically, that's got some significance as well. I think, you know, it's it's just very interesting how it is all evolved. And And I think you're right, because of that, you know, there's just a lot of misinformation that actually backfired instead of being a tool to convince people it was a tool to say, Oh, you people are nuts. And you know, you're wrong about this. So therefore you must be wrong about the entire plant.
0: Yeah. And that's the, that's the key thing that I, I want to make. The key point I guess I want to make is that myth-making has its place. It's important for making a political point. And it's important to, to recognize that a lot of the, the materials that are written about, that have been written about cannabis are, not histories, they're political advocacies. And so, you know, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, great piece of political advocacy. You can't open that book without being convinced that, indeed, hemp will save the planet, right? But it's it's really poorly researched, right? And And I don't mean to pick on anyone in particular.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the fact that some of it was factually incorrect does not diminish the importance of the work, because it did spearhead an entire movement. But not only that, To his credit, like I mentioned before, there's so little written about it that you really had to go digging into deep archives to try to find any information about cannabis. And when you think of where he was, he was in prison for advocating for cannabis when he wrote most of that book. And so he didn't have access to the kind of facts that you would need to feel good about the information that you're putting out. So to his credit, that's an important point to make. But yeah. I feel
0: bad in a sense, like picking on that book because it is so effective as a piece of political advocacy. And I can't think of another book that is as effective at presenting and pushing an agenda of legalization, of using hemp and using cannabis more wisely, of putting a a plant resource into better use as the end goal. He does it really well, but it's important to recognize that political advocacy has its place and actual historical research does something different and like establishing an honest and sound intellectual basis for, for advocacy is really important. I mean, again, one of the reasons that the prohibition has failed is because it was based on a bunch of nonsense that people have come to see as intellectually dishonest. And I think that, that people have enough awareness of cannabis and in general, you know, hemp in particular or medical marijuana or whatever in particular, people have enough, enough knowledge of that now that we need to kind of be more honest and say, okay, what do we actually know about the past, right, the history of the plant? And that'll be a stronger foundation going forward rather than kind of just continuing the, the political advocacy histories that that are, are really characteristic of, of what's existed for people with regard to cannabis.
1: Um, and that's the point, I, I, you know, I, I make. <laughs> And what's so interesting about what you just said is that that dichotomy on either side of any particular argument, they're going to grab for the most emotionally impactful exaggeration that they can come up with to make their point, their political point. And I think that that's happening right now, too. On either side of the political spectrum, you've got grandiose lies and expectations and political motivations and all of this stuff. And I think if everybody just took a step back and tried to look at the middle ground truth, you know you can find bits and pieces of truth on either side to validate each side the same as for the the pro and anti-cannabis movement as well. And you know, you started looking into this in two thousand and eleven. I started writing about cannabis back in two thousand and ten. And quite honestly, I had a really tough time finding any factual information online. I had to go to hard copy books that hadn't been digitized yet in order to get to the bottom of what happened back in the 30s and to find out what the actual benefits of the plant would be. It was really tough. And so I didn't wind up launching the cannabis reporter until 2015 simply because i felt like i just didn't have enough information to fill a website with stories about cannabis because almost everything i saw was sensational on either side you know a sensational pro and sensational against
0: and and that's exactly the problem like people who want to know like the easy sources of information are i mean they're they're appealing they're alluring but and, You know, from what I've found, is that most historical representations of cannabis that are easily easy to get to are are pretty bad. And you know, if you're looking at it from a different angle, trying to find out, you know, the health impacts or the you know potential medical applications, anything like that, it's the same set of obstacles. And it's, you know, it's not because people are out to trick everyone, but like that's what prohibition did to knowledge, right? Not talking about access to cannabis, just knowledge, right? Our knowledge is you know, 80 years or whatever behind because of how, you know, the the kind of political, you know, uh, context of, of prohibition, you know, suppressed research, right? Suppressed people um, finding out information. And we had people who presented information and, and who published books. Um, some of them are strong, a lot of them are bad. And, and it's really difficult to kind of weed through that. And, you know, For me, again, you know, I had to go and I felt like I had to go and write a different book in order to write the book just focused on a continent. If I was going to focus on a a very particular location, then there'd be a whole other series of obstacles to get over as well. So you know, that's, you know, the problem that you described is the problem that exists for, for so many people that we're at the point we need to move into like new knowledge and understand that a lot of what we're doing with cannabis has no real precedence, right? Using CBD, um, you know, medicinally as an extract or a tincture or whatnot, that really doesn't have any precedent, right? The ways that historical Euro- Europeans used it medicinally, it, it's not the same thing, right? And so we have to understand that there's there's a lot of new territory, which is exciting that we're moving into, but we also have to understand that that a lot of the histories that we're presenting ourselves are are not accurate, right? The fact that Africans and African Americans and Afro-Brazilians are completely absent, completely absent from the medical literature, at least the historical, you know, the the history of medicine part of it, that's that's unacceptable, right? To go and say, oh, Queen Victoria used it, so therefore it's you know should be, you know, super valuable in medicine, that's dishonest and it's deceptive. And we really need to embrace the history of the plant for what it is and, and get past kind of the, the period of prohibition where it's, it's, um, you know, the political advocates are those who are, are setting the, the the knowledge base and and setting the, the grounds for engagement and things like that. Um, it certainly had its place. Um, you know, the political advocacy, it still has its place. I mean, there's still a lot of political challenges that, that people are facing, but we also need to kind of understand that political advocacy is not the same as, as medical science, or social science, or history, history, anything like that.
1: Yeah, well, two things. One is that the cannabis vernacular was removed entirely from the pharmacopoeia when it was made illegal. And, And back in the day when Anslinger was pushing it through Congress, did not have the support of the American Medical Association or the incarnation of it. So that's one thing. And then, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention... Is that this is the reason why books like yours are so important, because we really do need to have that scholarly account to sort of counter the the sensational propaganda on either side, the pro and 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 anti marijuana. Uh, propaganda of the cannabis plant to push the the political points of either side of this issue so you know kudos to you and and congratulations on the book and I'm really excited to see what happens when it comes out because I have a feeling it's it's going to be one of those books that in and of itself will be of historical importance and I'm convinced that this movement is one of the most important that we'll experience in our lifetime anyway, um, in terms of its impact on society in general.
0: And sorry, it's, it's certainly, a, a you know, there's no other movement that I can think of that's operated in the same way, that it's really, you know, from the ground up, where it's people who've been interested in, in this particular plant, really pushing the agenda, and it's not been top down. It's been people like you know the political advocates and that that have existed in you know since the '60s and '70s. It's people like you who are saying, "Hey, let's look at what's actually going on in the world around us, rather than waiting for for some sort of a change to come from the top down." So it it really is an exciting time, a fascinating time to see how you know how the human relationship with cannabis is changing, and you know you know if if. If, if somebody's interested in, in studying and learning, boy, there's a whole lot out there that just hasn't been studied and, and hasn't been learned about very much. And so there's some really neat opportunities for people.
1: I couldn't agree more. And, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's such an exciting time to be in this industry. And I think it will make a big difference in a lot of people's lives. And I was so grateful that Congress passed the hemp measure inside the Farm Bill at the end of last year because... I'm convinced that hemp is key to achieving carbon neutrality as well moving forward because just about everything that can be made out of fossil fuels can be re-engineered out of hemp. (laughs) So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, I hope that you'll stay in touch with us when your book does come out. We'd love to be a part of helping to promote it and it's definitely going to make an impact. I thank you so much also for sharing your knowledge with us today. I and mean, this has been a fascinating conversation. So thank you so much.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for talking. And it's always great in your show and, and I appreciate your time as well.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that. So with that, it is time for us to bring this show to a close. Once again, I would like to personally thank my guest, Dr. Chris Duvall, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that he's doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And that's where you'll find his bio along with links to his book and his website. And be sure to check out the new pro series featuring Sunstate Technology Group's Dustin Byers. You don't want to miss it. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio partners, Sunstate Technology Group and Canisphere Biotech for supporting our show. I'd also like to thank our media partners at the Cannabis Science Conference, London CBD Group, Cannabis Radio, NewsBank, and others who help us to spread the word. I'd also like to thank my production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine And our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for broadcasting our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Green is